As always, it is a privilege to preach the Word, to stand before you and and proclaim not my opinions or my um, desires for you, but the Holy One of Israel, the God that we just proclaimed A to Z, what He has for you and for me. I read a quote recently um, about something that really applies to pastors, but it went like this, don't let the pulpit drive you to the Word, let the Word drive you to the pulpit. In other words, what I am going to proclaim to you tonight is something I desperately need myself. What I'm going to share with you tonight is something that is in the Word that has driven me now to the pulpit because I want to proclaim it to you. And with that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. It's going to be our text for tonight. Dependence upon God in prayer. Addressing the obstacles in our hearts that are in front of us in many ways and experiencing the power of Christ in us. Many times we see um, the subject of prayer. Maybe when Pastor Farrell mentioned that this morning, Pastor, Pastor Stephen's going to um, speak on the topic of prayer. Is that something that you get excited about hearing? Or is it, yeah, my prayer life is just not what it should be. You know, a lot of times we approach prayer that way. There's already an angst in our hearts. There's already a guilt in our hearts that we feel because we realize, you know, our prayer life is not as vibrant. It's not as ongoing and consistent as it should be. And a lot of times we compare ourselves with other men in church history. If we're not praying like George Mueller and breakfast just appears on our doorstep, um, then we obviously aren't praying as well as we should. Or if we don't have the prayer life of Charles Spurgeon or J.C. Ryle or, or some of these men in history, or even the Apostle Paul who we're going to look at tonight, then maybe my prayer life is not what it should be or non-existent. All of us have struggled with praying. Whether it's setting aside the time, knowing how to pray. But I truly believe, at least for my life, and hopefully you can identify with this, that praying is not done simply because we don't see the need for it. We don't plan for it. I want to read you some some quotes really quickly about prayer. John MacArthur has some some good help for us as we try to approach this tonight. He says that prayer is as normal to the Christian as breathing is to the human. You live in an atmosphere and you respond to that atmosphere of the presence of God by receiving that presence of God and by taking it in and putting it back out again in response to Him. Breathing in, breathing out. How involuntary is that for you at this point in your life? Did you just think about that breath you just took? Did you have to ponder it? Did you have to focus all of your energies on breathing? Now, for some for some of us, when we've run a great distance at a fast at a fast rate of speed, um, then we start thinking about breathing (laughs) and how we need to breathe. We need oxygen. But prayer is as normal to the Christian as breathing is to the human. It, It is 
that's so helpful for us. We see it as something that should be natural for us. It's something that should take place as naturally as breathing. John Piper says this, that prayer is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. I love that. Prayer is not about us. I mean, it's not about God, but it's about us depending upon God, taking that limp wire and, and accessing the power of heaven. One of my favorite authors, Robert Murray McShane, declares this, what a man is alone on his knees, not of his knees, but on his knees before God, that he is and no more. So with those definitions, what I'd like to do is build upon that and take us to addressing some obstacles in our hearts. When do you see this time as a time of refueling on looking at what are, the, what are the excuses, what are the obstacles in front of us, and then what does Paul, the Apostle, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have to say to us about the power that we can have in Christ through, through prayer? What are some of the excuses that you would bring? What are some of the obstacles in your life? Just think for, for a few seconds. What are some of those things that really are hindrances to prayer? Things that we, maybe statements that we say when we are looking at our, our prayer life and why it isn't consistent, why it isn't faithful. Here's one that I say quite often. This is just by way of introduction. I am too busy to pray. How many of you have ever thought that or said that? Raise your hand. Okay? Maybe you some are too busy to raise your hand at this point. Um, I'm too busy to do that. I don't have time. Do you understand what I have to do in a day? I came across a great story this week about a businessman who was on the side of a road. He ran out of gas. The driver obviously appeared to be perplexed and agitated. Someone drove by, took pity on his soul, and just happened to have um, a gas can uh, with a little bit of fuel in it. And so he gave him a gallon or two of gas. In the conversation, he said he was in such a great hurry that morning, he had to get to an important meeting, and he didn't have time to fill up his tank. So, he thanked the person who stopped by, and then he sped off. A few miles later, the person who helped him refuel his car saw the same man on the side of the road with his car again out of gas. The same driver, even more agitated this time, was very grateful that the guy pulled over again. And you guessed it, he was in such a hurry for his important business meeting that he had to skip the gas station and press on in the dim hope that the gallon he had received would take him the rest of the way. Now, I hope some of you are thinking, who would ever be that careless? Why would you drive past a gas station and you got there with the gallon of gas that someone gave to you? Why would you just keep on going? But for many of us, that is how we approach the Christian life. We're so busy pressing on to the next item on our agenda that we never pause for fuel. That word pause is something we don't like you know, to, to do. Even when we're watching a movie, we don't like to hit the pause button. We want to keep going, we want to get advanced, we want to get to the end. Faced with constant and urgent demands, we find it necessary or even easy to neglect the things that are most needful. So maybe your excuse tonight is, I'm too busy to pray. Maybe for you, some of you, it's, I feel too distant from God to pray. 
Sometimes we, we take the acceptability of my approach to God in prayer ought to be tied to how I feel. So if I haven't been in the Word in a few days, or if I have been praying to God for a few days, we kind of sheepishly approach the throne of grace instead of boldly approaching the throne of grace to find that grace to help in time of need. But instead, we approach God with feeling like we're distant from Him. And true, when we feel empty and discouraged, we may remind ourselves that, that obviously we have been neglecting the Word. But has God moved from his commitment to us to love us with an everlasting love? How do we end our prayers usually? In Jesus' name. You come in his name. You come with his merits. Not your own. Not your week of perfect devotions. And you say, now God's really going to be excited to see me. You know, I've, I've had my devotions for seven straight days. I've spent 30 minutes a day in prayer. He's going to love me more. Or maybe because you didn't do that, you feel a certain way. Well, it's not tied to your feelings. It's, it shouldn't be tied to your schedule, how busy you are. Some of us, this is something that I have to admit, I've said this at times. I don't, maybe not out loud, but in my heart, I don't feel a need to pray. As Pastor Farrell said at the end of his um, message today, talking about we don't have that urgency to come unless it's like, There's this crisis or something huge that I need prayer for, but little things throughout the day, the mundane, I don't need prayer for that. Obviously, few of us would ever say, I'm too important to pray, or I'm too self-confident to pray, or I'm too independent to pray. And some of us would even affirm the importance to pray. But in reality, we treat prayer sometimes as important in the lives of other people, not us. And that breeds prayerlessness. So sometimes I have to ask this this question to me. Why am I not in constant communication with God? Why does it even seem awkward or difficult sometimes for me to do that? The problem lies in my heart, lies in your heart. For some of us in this generation, we don't need prayer when we're mindlessly surfing the internet. You don't need prayer when you're watching movies and television. You don't need prayer when there's no risk In your Christianity, you don't need prayer when Christianity consists of a monotonous religious motion of routine. But when you risk everything to glorify Jesus Christ, you need prayer. When you have truly given up everything, denied yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus alone, everything, your possessions, your dreams, your hopes, your careers, everything is on the line. You need prayer at that point. And when you long to see God work in your life, as an instrument of transforming grace that changes you and those around you, you will pray. When you desire to obey God's will for your life, you'll earnestly seek Him and be desperate in prayer. So I think for some of us, that need, not feeling that need to pray, it's almost like we want to be identified with Christ, but we don't want to be inconvenienced by what Christ demands of us. We want to cling to basic doctrine, but we don't want to engage in serious Bible study and prayer. One more. I am too bitter to pray. Obviously, we can't live long in this world without coming across the injustice and sometimes lack of fairness. I have small children in my house, and they have already told me that life is not fair. Even if it's just about a toy. 
This is not fair. Dad, you need to make everything right and see things my way. I am too bitter to pray. Sometimes, because of the suffering that we've endured, we say, well, how can we be expected to pray when I have gone through so much? How can you expect me to pray for my enemies when they have done such damage to my life? How can I... I don't want to give, away, give up that spirit of revenge or bitterness or malice or gossip. So we cling to that instead of clinging, clinging to God in prayer. So just right off on the outset, I want to help us address these, these obstacles in our hearts. And I want us to go straight to Ephesians chapter 3 where I think you will find the fuel that you are looking for. Um, no more important call could be given to Christians today than to pursue Christ, to know Christ, to focus on Him, to understand what it means to be in Christ, that goal of your life to be based on Christ, that your need is for Christ. Amidst all of the dilemmas we face, the things we can't cope with, the anxieties we need to be delivered from, it isn't because you haven't found the right formula or the right seminar or haven't read the right book or... That the right product isn't on the shelves in the stores. You have the right book, and it's right here for us tonight. So let's read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. In other words, you're participating in these, in these things that I've endured, he says. For this reason, I bow my knees. He's praying here. Let's see the content of his prayer. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And here we go, verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And here's that verse that we love to quote. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I find this very helpful. When you get to verse 20, that verse we love to quote, that verse that is that just makes our hearts soar, with confidence, knowing that our God is able and He will do above all expectations that we could ever ask or think. How you get to verse 20, though, is very crucial because it starts back in verse 16 and a prayer that Paul is praying for these Ephesians. A prayer that you could pray for yourself. A prayer that you could pray for your spouse. A prayer that you could pray for your friends, your co-workers for your children. And why wouldn't you? Look at the result. The result is God is able to do more abundantly than you could ever ask in prayer or you could ever fathom. 
And it all happens at the beginning of verse 16. In other words, Paul's saying this. Look, I, I don't want you to be the kind of people that lose heart, like he says in verse Verse 13, I don't want you to be disheartened. I don't want you to become weak or vacillating between two things. You're going to possess Christ's power that will exceed your expectation of what God could ever accomplish in you. You didn't get the short end of the stick is what he's saying. You're not stumbling around in weakness just trying to crawl up to some average level. You are about to live beyond your expectations. And he says, I'm praying, I'm bowing my knees before the Father the Creator God, and I'm going to ask Him to do this work in you. So how is this going to happen? What prompts this, this, um, this explosion of confidence in verse 20? Well, first of all, it's Christ's strength in the inner man. Think of this first part of the verse here as kind of like the ignition. It's like turning on the engine of the car. The book of Ephesians is a, is a book where much like the epistles that Paul's written, half of the book is about laying down the foundation, laying down the doctrine. The next half of the book is all about applying that doctrine. And so in the first three chapters here, we've gotten a look under the hood. He's, he's pointing out everything that is a part of Christian doctrine that we need to know. And then he transitions to turning on the car. And this powerful engine just comes to life. You know, it doesn't do any good to just own a car like that. You have to drive it. And now we get to see how this car drives. And it is Christ's strength in our inner man. It is inner strength. Sometimes we think that that revolves around us and God kind of comes alongside us when we, when we fall or when we're weak or when we feel like we need Him. When all along, as we... As we have received Christ in us through the gospel, He is the one strengthening that inner man. The old man has been put to death and the new man, Christ Jesus, is in us. And He's asking God to grant you, to grant me, to grant the people He was talking to, according to what are we going to get this strength? According to the riches of His Glory. Can you fathom that just for a second? All of the resources that are at God's disposal is now put to you in strengthening your inner man. It's important because the pressures and the stresses and troubles, trials of this life come upon us, they come upon others such as the Apostle Paul even, and it can tear up that inner man and devastate us, even steal our joy and our peace at times, rendering us feeling like we're useless for God's work. We can get discouraged very easily. That inner man can be, can be, um, can be discouraged by all of these things. And the longer you live, the more painful it becomes. And that weaker, weakened inner man can have doubt and fear and anxiety leads to frustration, even emotional and spiritual pain. But that inner man is the eternal part, the real you, the soul, the spirit, who you are on the inside. And Paul is saying that Christ can make you strong there. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, 
But though our outer man is decaying, it's going to happen to all of us, like it or not. Even the movie stars that go through all these multiple surgeries to make themselves look younger than they are, it's still going to happen. The outer man is decaying. But what does he say about the inner man? The inner man is being renewed day by day. How is that happening? According to the riches of his glory. Christ is strengthening that inner man. I'm happy to announce to you this evening that even though your outer man and my outer man continues to get worse, even decaying as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, our inner man will continue to be in better condition because it is continually being refreshed by Christ and His Word. We live in a culture that is only concerned with the outer man. Christ says this is about the inner man. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, Apostle Paul gives us one little experience that talks about this. He says, at first, verse 17, that no one supported me, everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. I am all alone, except Luke is with me. Verse 17 says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. What a tremendous testimony of what God was doing, even in the final moments leading up to Paul's beheading in Rome. Christ does this all the time, but, he, but it is most noticeable when we have exhausted our own resources. St. Corinthians 12 says, we come to this point of our greatest weakness. That is when His strength is what? My grace is sufficient for you. Though I'm, when I'm weak, I am strong. How is that possible? Outer man decaying, outer man wasting away, hope even at times wasting away, at least I feel it is, and there's, there's doubt creeping in, there's fear, there's anxiety, and then what do I do? I go to Christ, I see the riches of His glory, the riches that He possesses, and He says, I'm going to strengthen you with power in your inner man. My first step in getting the ignition turned on of all this immense power is outlined for us here. It is depending upon God. Going to Him. And He says He will grant you according to His riches of His glory as we yield to His Spirit. It's one thing to understand the riches of Christ. It's one thing to possess the riches of His glory in the strength of that we have through Jesus. Not only that, he has Christ's indwelling presence. This leads to a second step in this progression, leading up to verse 20, the verse we all, we all love, the one who, who can do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. Well, now it's, we're, we're, we're keyed in here to Christ, verse 17, dwelling in your hearts through faith. Now, some of you are saying, wait, 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 I mean, how can I have a strong inner man if Christ is not dwelling in my heart by faith? That's a good question because he's not talking about salvation here. Take a closer look at the word. The word to dwell or the word to dwell in your hearts by faith. It means to settle down. It means to be at home. 
It's not a question of whether Christ is in your life. It's the question is, is he at home there? You know the difference between being in a house and being at home? Can you think of, the, of any instances in your life where you've been at, been at a place of residence, but you've not felt at home? Remember the first time that I went to, to Shannon Cheney's home, my wife of 12 years, and her mom helped me feel at home. But when I saw her dad and how he glared at me, I did not feel at home. I had to be reassured that I was allowed to be there. (laughs) And obviously, like any good father who treasures their daughter, he was, you know, giving me the once over, watching me closely. But when I walked into that house, I didn't just sprawl out on the couch, prop my feet up, grab something from the fridge. No. I think I may have stood at attention like a soldier most of the time. Because I was trying to make a good impression, of course, but also I just didn't, this wasn't a home to me. This was, this was a place of residence. I did not feel at home there until I was reassured of that. This is really an intense verb here. It really means to settle down. It means to take up residence. It means to go through a house and make it into not just a dwelling place, but a, but a home. So the question is not whether Christ is in your life. I hope that question has been answered in the gospel for you. But whether he's comfortable, whether he is at home there. What Paul is after here is that we as believers have so yielded ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit expressed in the Word of God to create that strong inner man that Christ is dwelling in us so much so that he can settle down and be at home. Is Jesus at home in my heart? Is he at home in your heart? What does he find in your heart? What does he find in the control room? What does he find in your mind and in your home of your life? Is it the garbage of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, materialism, the things of this world? Is that what occupies your mind and your heart? What does he find? He wants to replace that with the Word. He wants to replace that with Himself so that He is at home to come to dwell in your heart through faith. As that happens, here's the progression. There is Christ's incomprehensible love. When He settles down and is at home in your life, it says here that you will be rooted and grounded in love and that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He transforms you into something. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love so that you can comprehend with all of the saints. This dominates your life, that characteristic of love, and you're rooted in it, you're grounded in it, you're building your life off of it. He means that love here is not peripheral, it's not something that's extra, it's not something on the circumference of your life, it's something that's at the center. 
It's not hit and miss. It's not a minor detail. It's the essential root and ground of all that you are. What is the love that he's talking about here? The love which has been shed abroad in your heart that comes by faith, not by works, as you practice His presence, He says. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. The love that covers a multitude of sins in the lives of others. The love that He said, all men will know you by this, they'll know you that you'll know that you're my disciple because of the love you have. But listen, it's not just the characteristic of your life, it's also something you will experience. Verse 18 says you'll begin to comprehend or apprehend and possess with all the saints that breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. It's really incomprehensible when you try to describe the love of God for us. I love the old hymn that says, To write the love of God would what? Drain the ocean dry. If the ocean was ink and all the skies were the parchment, it would drain the ocean dry. You would still run, you would run out of ink to describe it. I remember the first time I went um, to, the, to Niagara Falls. I was with a group of my college friends, we were there um, in, in, in a church in Canada um, doing a service with them and sweet time, sweet people. But they, they said, you're, if you're here, and since you're on the Canadian side, you have to see Niagara Falls. I remember pulling up to Niagara Falls and they told us to, you know, to push the window button down. and I thought that was a little strange. As soon as, I, as soon as the window went down, I just heard this roar. Ever been there? Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls in here? You know what I'm talking about. I'm thinking, is there static noise in the car? Is there something wrong? Is some, you know, what is that sound? Is that is there a forest fire or something? I mean, it just sounds just this roar coming. He says, "Oh, we're almost there. We're only two miles away." <laughs> and when we got there, it was just deafening, and I just could not even wrap my mind around what I was seeing. I'd never seen something so huge. Just just millions of gallons of water just rushing. So powerful. So amazing. They put us in this boat. And they, we got to wear these, uh, these little jackets that really weren't that helpful in keeping us dry. But it was called the Maid of the Mist or something like that. And I thought, Mist? Um, it was like a torrential rain is what it was. And it wasn't the waterfall hitting us directly, otherwise I wouldn't be here preaching to you tonight. But it was the mist that comes up from the water pressure coming down onto the water that's, that's below. And it just shoots up this mist that is almost like rain. It was unbelievable. I just remember just sit, standing back just in awe of this. And thinking, I can't describe this. this is, words are not enough for this. The love of God is much like Niagara Falls. It completely takes over. It rushes all over you, your thoughts, your actions. It even spills over into the lives of others. It dominates you. And when Christ settles down to be at home in your life, your life is now dominated by this incomprehensible love. It comes to you through Christ. And then you take possession of it along with all of the saints 
And then you spill that over into the lives of others. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth. It's limitless. Limitless to the sky above. Limitless to the horizons on every side. Limitless to the depths beneath. My son Jonas is just fascinated with the oceans and and sharks and, and all kinds of things. We've been studying together in the evenings these library books. We're just pouring over them. And he got to the Mariana Trench. And he was speechless. I was speechless. When you start reading the deepest part of the earth and you think the love of God far exceeds that. You've only scratched the surface of the Mariana Trench of God's love. It's limitless. One of the church fathers, Jerome, said this, the love of Christ reaches up to the holy angels and it reaches down to the lowest hell. Its length covers the men on the upward way and its breadth reaches to those drifting away on evil paths. It can reach anyone. So Paul prays that we will have this experiential knowledge. It's not just you explaining to me or me trying to explain to you what Niagara Falls is like. It's you actually going and experiencing it for yourself. This love of God. And scratching the surface of it and being rooted and grounded in it. And then, here comes another result of this. Infinite fullness. Look, if you would, in verse 18. May be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth. And, verse 19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Are there any other verses that talk about that? Another attribute of God? It's actually in the subject of prayer in Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But by prayer and supplication, let your what? Requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here he says that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. And it should not surprise us. But even though it surpasses words and knowledge, it says that we'll be filled up with it to all of the fullness of God. Just trying to grasp that is mind-boggling as well. It simply means that we will be like Him. We are in Christ and He is in us and we are becoming like Him. So follow this process down. You are strengthened with the inner man. Christ is at home in your heart with His indwelling presence. His incomprehensible love is something you are grounded in and you are sharing with others, and that you are experiencing yourself, and then there is this infinite fullness coming from that riches of His glory down to you, making you complete, as Colossians 2.10 tells us. He fills you up with all of His attributes, all the things you said from A to Z tonight. He fills you up with those, those characteristics, those attributes. Because our God is able, because our God is mighty, because our God is Yahweh, self-existent one, because He is Elohim, the mighty and strong Creator, because He is my defender, because He is um, the one who, who is my satisfaction and fulfillment, I am filled up with all of that fullness. And now I can do more than just face the day. Verse 20 is what awaits you. That love and joy and peace You're going to know all of that. 
And if I'm filled up with that fullness of God, then God is, God is going to move powerfully through me and in me. And that's what takes us to verse 20. God's, and Christ, I should say, immeasurable results. Now, all this has been building to verse 20. We've talked about the excuses and the obstacles to prayer. I hope you're seeing the need for it at this point and the results of it. However, most of us think that we are only relegated to live in the shallows. There's no Niagara Falls for us. We're going to be in the James River if we're lucky, right? But powerful lives, God working in us and working through us, are not built on clever ideas. They're not built on mere hard work. The path to this spiritual power that he's talking about is pursued through these things. Christ's strength, His presence, His love, His fullness, and yes, you guessed it, His results. Tremendous power is available for every issue of life. Think of it this way. Remember what Paul told Timothy? Ashton talked about how Paul was pleading with Timothy to guard the truth, the deposit, the treasure that he had been given. He also told this, this, this young pastor something else. He said, God has not given us the spirit of fear. What does he say first? He has given us the spirit of Power. And what's the second one? Love. And a sound mind or, or a mind for it that is, that is self-controlled. Not fear. Not defeat. Not losing. But power and love. The things that are contained here in Ephesians 3. Tremendous power that comes from the riches of His glory. Isaiah, I think, saw this wonderfully in, in verse 28 of chapter 40. You know this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding of us is unscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though the youths grow weary and tired, and young men stumble, yet those who wait on the Lord will what? Renew or gain new strength. Now, if you stop right there, I think you miss out on the punctuation mark, the exclamation point. They will what? Mount up with wings like eagles. Ever meditated on that? That doesn't sound like just a little dose of God's power. That sounds like immeasurable power. We will run and not get tired. We will walk and not become weary. Why? Because of the strength that God provides. Because of His presence. Because of His love. Because He has filled us up with everything we need. His character. His attributes. And now, it should not amaze us, although we probably do stand back in awe, but it should not be something that's out of character to say now there is this immeasurable, powerful result. Let me read to you verse 20 again. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that, what? Works within us. 
This is something being done to you. It's the power within us. To Him be the glory, He says. For me, this is such a foolish thing, such an ignorant thing for me to faithlessly walk around thinking that I am inadequate and unable to have this kind of power at my disposal. Thinking that it's something for super-Christians to have. Something that the Apostle Paul had. That Christ selects certain key people and everyone else has to live in the shallows. I wonder if if I'm not seeing the power of God in my life, it's probably because I'm not being filled with the fullness of God. It's probably because I'm not rooted and grounded in that love. It's probably because Christ is not at home in my heart. It's probably because I'm not strong in my inner man and I need to pray this prayer and live this way. Why does God want you to have this power? Why does He want you to see immeasurable results? Verse 21 tells us, Unto Him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Let it be, He says. Amen. In order that He might display His glory in the church. In order that He might display His glory to all generations. God is powerful. We are His people. He wants to be glorified by being powerful and being strong in us to all generations, starting now and forever. It's always been about His glory. It will continue to be about His glory. But those riches of His glory are now for us. So how is your prayer life? How are you depending upon God in prayer, as you do this, you will experience His power. This is something that you can take even tomorrow morning when you're sitting with your, with your spouse together. Or maybe it's you, you, you alone with God in your study. Maybe it's at your lunch break. If you're a busy um, mom at home, maybe between diapers, you pull this out. okay, And you say, okay God, I want this in my life. I want you to grant me strengthen my inner man. I want you to be at home in my heart. I I want to be rooted and grounded in this love. I want to experience your infinite fullness filling me by your Spirit. And I want to see those results in my life of you doing exceedingly abundantly above ever, of everything I could ever ask or think in my children, in my marriage, in this church at Timberlake. And we'll give Him the glory for that.